0: Hey
1: everyone, this is Jason, and welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. Today we have Quan Hwin, author of the book Sparrow and the Razor Wire, Finding Freedom from Within While Serving a Life Sentence. Quan was given a life sentence for shooting and killing another man in a gang-related incident in Hollywood in 1999. After many years, he realized that prison can be a place of healing as opposed to purely punishment. He began his journey towards inner freedom, and despite knowing that he could have spent the rest of his life in prison, he dedicated himself to helping others do the same. He was ultimately paroled from his life sentence in 2015 and has continued to help others on the inside and out of prison with multiple initiatives and ventures. After listening to this conversation, I highly encourage you go pick up his book to get even deeper into his story. Let's get into it. Hi, Kwan. Thank you so much for joining the Bold Moves Only podcast. Thank you for having me. So, I'm really glad you're joining me. I think part of Bold Moves Only that I have neglected is the aspect of taking bold action for oneself to make a positive change. And you have done quite a lot to not only help others, but you have done a lot of work on yourself, which is what made it even possible to help others. Um, So I I know you have talked about this quite a lot and it's covered in your book, but I think it's very important to provide some context. Can you take me through some key periods of your childhood that you think really shaped your later years?
0: Uh, Sure, yeah, I grew up here in um, Provo, Utah, came to the United States as a toddler, and that's where I grew up. Uh, We resettled there after the Vietnam War, after we lost our country. So um, that's where I grew up. Our family is Roman Catholic and of course Vietnamese, and the vast majority of people in Utah were uh, Mormon and white. So I just remember growing up and not really feeling like we fit in, um, not feeling like with, like uh, uh, just wanting to look normal, like the kids around me. I I, I didn't really I didn't understand why we had to look different and why our family looked different. Um, so a lot of that growing up, and then of course we did experience uh, racism. And uh, in particular, one incident that sticks out to me as a, a child was when my brother and I were uh, bullied, you know, playing with our GI Joes in the streams and. Some older kids told us to get out of the country. Um, we told them make us, and they chased us down, uh, shoved my brother to the ground, uh, put dirt in his mouth, and I stood there and um, didn't do anything. And when I went home, my father was very disappointed in me and said, like, how could you let this happen to your younger brother? Um, of course, my father never spoke about it again, but from there it was, for me, it just became, uh, I felt very ashamed because he didn't speak about it, and I'm sure he forgave me and everything, but it's just in my mind at the time, I let my father down, I let my younger brother down, I let my family down, um, so there was always just this uh, chip on my shoulder when it came to like, being very sensitive to racism and where I just feel like I don't fit in or, or being very sensitive to not fitting in with people.
1: And can you just go a bit into the life you were living before you ultimately were sent to prison?
0: Yeah, I, I. well my father ended up passing away uh, in my teenage years um, when I was 13. My brother and I took to the streets a little bit after that. First arrest came at the age of 17 and then I started going in and out of uh, the California Correctional System. Um, And then ended up, uh, I was also heavily involved with a uh, very violent Vietnamese gang, ultimately committed a murder in 1999 and was given a uh, 15 year life sentence in the California uh, prison system.
1: And you were, so, as you said, you were in prison for quite some time, but it actually took a while before you really started to realize that it could actually be a place where you could work on yourself and help others. I'm wondering, what were the first... What, what was the first moment or first moments where you realized you wanted to turn things around? Um, so, yeah, in prison, I would say um,
0: when I look back now, there were many moments like I think I wanted to turn my life around. Or I wanted a different life, but I just didn't see a way out. Like, you know, I'll, I'll get involved with a group where I'll go, um, and then they, they teach us a couple things. And it it, it's, it takes me out of prison for a little bit, but then I go back to prison life and just, so it's like one step forward, two, three steps back. And that's just how it continued to be for about um, 10, 10, 12 years of my prison sentence. And it wasn't until like the 10th, 12th year where there were several things that um, ha- helped for me to really start turning things around was, you know, my my younger my little niece was born. That's my younger brother's daughter. So I got a picture of her and I just remember seeing her for the first time and it taking me back to childhood. And then me asking myself these questions, like, why, how did my life end up like this? Like, why am I doing a life sentence in prison? I'm going to die in here. Um, then also made a question about my father who, I think by that time I was in my thirties and my father had passed away in his thirties. And I was reflecting on my life compared to his and saw like how he contributed so much to the world. And all I, I, all I was doing was causing a lot of pain and and, and destruction and hurt in people's lives. Um, also around that time, because I've always read, uh, I've always been a bookworm I, I I get on these habits of going down these rabbit trails of different books I'm reading. And um, it was during that time that I became fascinated with stories on books of the saints and in particular saints that had failed in some way or another and, and yet went on to create these amazing legacies. And I was very drawn in by these stories. So I, um, I don't know, I I just went down these rabbit trails, which took me into books on spirituality and meditation and mindfulness and it just became this uh I would have to say this perfect storm in my mind and my soul. And it was one day on the prison yard when um, I was standing at the fence and I was just asking myself, I just asked myself, like, why does prison have to be punishment? Why can't this be a place where I could remake myself, even if I'm supposed to die in here? And I realized I could. And that that made all the difference in the world, right there. You know, the sun was coming up over the fields. I felt the warmth in the individual blades of grass. I saw the uh, drops of dew, and up above me in the razor wire, I heard a sparrow chirping. And I tell everyone, like I, that sparrow probably those sparrows have been chirping probably my whole prison term, and I never heard it. But that day, I heard it, and. I would have to say it from that day forth, that prison um, was no longer this cold, harsh, ugly place. It just became a place where I could begin to remake myself and begin to remake the world around me. And then that's when I just saw like things start falling into place. You know, the saying, they said, when the student is ready, the, the teacher appears. And suddenly there were all these teachers all around me. Um, that, that, whether it's in the form of books, whether it's in the form of self-help groups, whether it's in the form of mentors that I uh, reached out to, to ask for guidance and just uh, bouncing my thoughts off of them. And it became a place for me for every day. I go, what can I learn from the universe today? What can I learn to make myself a better person? What can I do to make this a better world? And that's just how it, I would have to say that's where it began.
1: And you talk about how much you read and you know i i would assume that the vast majority of people will never read as much as you have especially on these particular matters so i'm wondering were there any specific things that you took away that you think helped you the most and could really help others with their own internal struggles
0: well actually there's a quite a bit of guys in there that read quite a bit but um, i don't know whether what subjects because I, I i didn't really notice what people were reading because i know all those years i was reading just different books, on um, different things that fascinated me. So I, but I wouldn't be surprised if there were uh, quite a few other men that read a bunch of stuff like this. Um, but I think the ones that that really helped me were uh, Elizabeth Kubler, Kubler-Ross's books on grief and loss. And that, where that helped me understand the, the grieving process and how that contributed to me being unable to mourn for my father for like 20 something years after his death. Um, and how that contributed to everything in my life. So that, that, was, a, that was one piece. There was a piece on um, communicating effectively. Uh, you know, I became very fascinated with a lot of personal development books also, and, and, and even business books. But even, I even used those as, okay, this is how somebody runs a great company, but I looked at it as this is how you can, like, make yourself a better person. That's that's how I continued to look at these books that I was reading at the time. So it was like a whole bunch of different books that that I would have to say helped me.
1: And I know that the idea of acceptance was a significant part of your journey. Can you talk about how important it was to accept and take full responsibility for your actions, for for the parole hearings, but also just for yourself? Like, What does it mean to completely accept everything?
0: Uh, For me, it means to be being able to embrace both the of course the good but then and the bad like you know i think it's just human nature to want to be liked it's human nature to want to be accepted um but then i think in it i i used to sell myself short like okay i want to impress everyone around me so much that i have to tell these lies and i have to continue to search for lies that were untrue like whether it's a small lie or whether it's a big lie, it was like, um, so for me to take responsibility means, okay, I, I know at this moment, let's say this person said something like foul to me, but I can choose to respond sarcastically or with violence or, um, or I could choose to respond with goodness and kind words. So it's, that's what, it, for me, it's just like, okay, this is what this person said or did, or this is what the situation is happening around me, but then how am I choosing my way through this and owning every choice I make, if that's making sense?
1: Yeah, and you think that that translates to every context?
0: Yeah, I mean, that that helps me. I mean, like a, a, a simple example here is, let's just say I'm running late to a meeting or I get on late to a meeting, um, I, I I can find a tendency, okay, make an excuse of why I was late. Like, okay, it's because of this or this or this, or just say, hey, you know, I'm sorry, I'm late for the meeting. And there, there really has to be no explanation of it. I mean, I'm late because I'm late. So I think that's, that's, that's just how I, I feel about it, where I see it. The tendency can be like, oh, I'm late because this person held me over or that person... But then there's no sense of saying, okay, but then I'm choosing to still stay on this meeting extra or whatever it is. So just little things like that. But I mean, I I used it to a different level where I had to come to a place where I had to own, you know what, this is the ugliest part to me. I committed a murder, Um, but then yet I can choose to say, yes, I committed it without trying to make excuses about it. Like, oh, it's because of this, this or this. But nope, I just committed a murder. I shot and killed a living, breathing human being. And that's the way I, I guess I choose to to try to show up.
1: And why is it so important for you to share this story when you could really just move on from all of this and never have to talk about it ever again?
0: Uh, a couple of reasons. I think there's there's so many more amazing, deserving men that I left behind uh, when I was incarcerated. And it wasn't because their crimes were any more heinous than mine. Um, I would have to say it's more because they perhaps have not come to a place of self-acceptance or self-forgiveness and or they were not as criminally sophisticated when they committed their crime. So then they got a longer sentence or they got a sentence where they don't have any, any uh, legal way to get out of prison. Also, I think I want to share my journey, my story is because I think I would like to change the face of what it means to be formerly incarcerated. Um, I mean, I, I, I see it's easy for society to discard us or just say, you know, these these guys committed crimes, they should be locked up and, 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 and will throw away the key, or or someone that's committed murder should never be let out. Um and yet I seen some and I live with and, and, and I know some amazing human beings that have changed their lives around. Yes, they committed some very violent uh acts, but yet I was able to turn my life around. Many of them have been able to turn their lives around. I mean, that's why. One of my favorite quotes by um, St. Francis of Assisi, where he says, "Um, I have been all things unholy. If God can work through me, surely he can work through anyone. And I just think like if we say what uh, every if we believe in second chances, if you believe in the human capacity to change, um, then I think every human should be salvageable. That's that's the way I look at it.
1: Yeah. And I and I feel like there is this idea that in order for people who are in prison to be accepted and truly deserving of another chance, they need to be productive. I don't know if you feel the same, but I feel like there is always such an emphasis on being a productive member of society. But like what what does that even mean being productive in your parole hearings? You need to prove that you are no longer a threat, not that you are productive. So what do you make of all this? Do you find this to be at all dehumanizing?
0: Well, I, I, I'm, I'm glad you bring it up because, they, you know, people out here will say, yeah, they have to be a productive member of society. So what does that mean? That means holding down a job or or uh, paying their bills, right? But then if someone coming home from incarceration is still discriminated against because they cannot get a job or, you know, someone said, well, well, I wouldn't want that as a co-worker. So we're or I wouldn't want my company to hire someone that has an ex-felon or I wouldn't want someone that, to work next to me that committed murder. And we're still in essence how can we say that we want somebody that's productive but yet we're still writing them off we're still discriminating it against them for something they may have did 20 30 years ago 15 years ago
1: and that's kind of where you come in with your work with defy ventures could you explain a bit what that is and what you've been doing with them
0: yeah uh defy ventures is a nonprofit. Uh, We work inside prisons. Uh, It's a program. It's called the CEO of Your New Life. And it's a seven-month program uh, that basically uh, helps men and women with criminal histories to transform their lives through the journey of entrepreneurship.
1: Previously, you mentioned some of the important people throughout this process that really helped you. Um, One in particular that caught my eye in your book was donnie when he said you ain't ever got it unless you give it back can you explain what this means to you
0: yeah uh i remember so donnie to give context to your listeners that may not have read the book um was one of the first teachers or mentors i think that crossed my path that really that when he came across my path i was ready for um and he's the one that got me to a place of personal responsibility what that really meant and pushed me to even you know dig deeper um and he used to tell me all the time like when he was found suitable at the pro board he used to tell me you ain't ever got it unless you can give it back so make sure you always give it back and so that's that's a why i even after Donnie parole and I would begin sitting with other men, preparing them for the parole board, and uh, you know it's funny to call it board prep inside and it's like almost like coaching out here, coaching them to be their best selves and to uh, see their their blind spots and ex- accept their their failures and that's okay and um so that began a way for me of how can I give this back? Do I really got this and that's how it will continue to push me all the time. And I guess that's still what drives me today is that, yeah, I, 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 that was a lot of the motivation for writing my book. Like um, if I'm sitting there and I'm helping guys. And then when I, I got out of prison, when I used to go back inside, like within talking to a man for like 10, five, 10 minutes, I, I, I could like, when they found out that I was a lifer, they asked me a bunch of questions. Oh, what about this and this and, I realized, like, oh, man, I could help this guy. Like, if I was on this yard, if I didn't have to leave today and I could live here on this yard with him for the next few months, I could really help him prepare for the board. But for me, it's much more than just preparing for the board. It's more coming to a place of, you know, like, self-acceptance and self-understanding and just, like, total freedom. And that's what I had in there. And that's a gift that I wanted to continue to give back to those that were incarcerated, regardless if they were ever going to go home on not. That was – that's the way I felt is that I found this freedom and this amazing freedom. I'm not even home yet. And I'd love to just give this gift to the men all around me. Um, so that's, that's why, like I said, I I realized, okay, I might not be able to sit on this yard and help this man, but hopefully if I share some of my journey that in reading the book, um, you know, and of course, sharing a bunch of my failures along the way in reading the book, these men or women that are incarcerated can also see and, perhaps find some small nuggets uh, 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 in there that could help them on their journey for personal freedom.
1: And have you seen your help kind of trickle down? Because as you just mentioned, it was people like Donnie who helped you, who ultimately inspired you to want to help others. I'm wondering how, if, if, if you've seen, um, as I said, your aid trickle down into others who want to ultimately do the same.
0: Yeah, I mean, even on the prison yard before I paroled, we I seen I saw like within four years, like if I saw from where my journey began in there, my journey of change began in four years when I paroled, you know, the the amount of groups that were peer facilitated, like created by men that were incarcerated and and how we changed that culture of that prison yard from one of like violence and and and, and anger and bitterness to one of, you know, like respect and dignity for each other and 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 non-violence. i i saw how that we trans basically transformed the fabric of that prison yard um so that's just in this that prison yard that i was at and i saw like you know and of course those men that transferred to other prisons and they created other groups and and now i hear about all these groups inside like women and that are and women that are coming home now and i'm hearing about so i would have to say yeah i saw And I I would have to say, yes, I get to contribute to some of that in some way. Um, And then now receiving letters from men or women that are incarcerated that have read my book and they're sharing with me groups that they've created or groups that they're involved in, or after reading my book, how they're inspired to join groups or to create groups. So I see that this is a way that's still um, giving back in a sense.
1: Yeah. And I imagine that inspires you to keep sharing over and over again
0: yeah it, it does and then also the work that we do at defy where we're going in like you know that the we they're learning how to think like ceos and it's not just business but you know about 65 70 percent of it is character and personal development and you know uh working on themselves and and, and uh looking at self-limiting beliefs and looking at uh where they're being able to take feedback all of that ties in to making them better human beings and and all of that ties into helping them on their journey in prison regardless of where they go where they transition to
1: and and shifting a bit therapy is still something that is kind of looked down upon and kind of an awkward thing to talk about for some i personally have never regularly seen a therapist but still think it's extremely important to have that option and do whatever is necessary to take care of your mental health. But in the book, you also talk about the stigma of therapy, and it was clearly essential for you to make the changes that you have. And you launched your prison's first grief and loss group with a 12 week curriculum. And I know that it was ultimately canceled. But how important was it for you and the others around you to have these resources? And can you talk about how important it is for us to break the stigma everywhere?
0: Yeah. It, it it's, I remember when I, I realized I wanted to, it was like just during this whole journey and I realized I couldn't figure this all out on my own and checking in with the therapist, and like you said, in prison it's there it was a big stigma on seeing a therapist. Um, it's almost took down like this is, you are soft or something is wrong with you because you don't need to talk to anybody, you know, we're, we're men, we're convicts. Um, but for me, it just, that's where I I was able to really process my father's death and, and understanding my father's death. And then, of course, being fascinated with that subject and reading all on the grief and loss, that's when I realized I, I men around me were facing a lot of grief, uh, were, uh, were unable to mourn because of this, you know, this toxic masculinity, if you want to say it like that, like the men that we have to be men and we can't talk about feelings, Tim and all of that so uh i realized you know man, a man transferring from one prison to another after being there five ten years and losing all his friends and having to make new friends and unable to talk about oh i miss my old friends or a man that may have been denied multiple times at parole board and no longer has contact with his children or his wife has passed on and he can't talk about it and he can't cry about it so all of this was which gave me motivation like man we're facing so much uh uh, grief and loss and an inability to process our feelings or 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 experience or prison experience so that's why we did create that i did create that grief and loss group and i put the syllabus together and submitted it to the prison psychologist who loved it and we did get to run uh several groups before it got canceled but yeah nice but i saw in those rooms those, those few sessions that we did, uh, we were able to run that a lot of the men like took to, like, that, those waiting lists were long and people talked about how do we get this back together. People did spin offs of it, so.
1: Hmm. And what's next for you? So wh- what are the things that you still want to work on?
0: Well, I'd still like to work on, of course, uh, getting more of the so the business and corporate world to see on how they're contributing to a second sentence for men and women coming home from prison by discriminating against them for um, not hiring not hiring them. you know um, so I'd like to continue to uh, champion the men and women that are coming home to give them, you know, just a just a fair chance. We're not asking them to people to give a job. We're just saying, hey, just give uh, uh, give them a fair shot at the interview, And if all things being equal, if this candidate is just as qualified as the next person, if they have the same skill sets, let's let's look past this criminal conviction. So that's what uh, I I still working on at Defy. 5 mean, of course, still trying to get our program into other prisons and provide uh, hope for the men and women inside. Um, a personal goal of mine is to continue to find ways to get more of my books into every prison in the United States. Um, recently, I was approved. For uh, distribution of my book through uh, every single prison uh, law library in the state of California, so that that was a big victory because overnight my my books were shipped off and delivered to every single prison in California. There 125 prison law libraries because they have them on separate yards. So that means you know hopefully there are men and women that are reading it and sharing the message and hopefully it provides some type of hope for those inside. But now it's Okay, how do I scale this fifty more times to the or forty nine more times to the other to the, to the other states to get this? Um, yeah, I think it's for me. It's just being involved with reentry in general and realizing, um, you know, I think it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's a big word in, in in the corporate world, but then what does this really mean when you know they say okay, well does that include the formerly incarcerated like will you include that population in it and that and the answer should be yes we should that, that should be brought up so all of that i think that's that's just where i i i feel moved to give back at this time um and that's just what i'm involved in
1: and what are the best ways for others to get involved if they want to do so
0: yeah, if they want to, let's say if people want to uh, get involved with our work at Defy Ventures, they can just go right to our website, it's defyventures.org, where that's uh, an opportunity to go into prison with us. Once they open them back up, which should be pretty soon, um, we have post-release events, which are done virtually. Um, coaching events, if if they're interested in um, possibly hiring or becoming fair chance employers, then I would love to hear from uh, any of you listeners. They can also reach out to me personally on uh, my website at quan kwan at kwanxwin.com, or they could, or if that's hard to spell, they just go to com, and then they can find me from there.
1: Great. and And last question, something I ask everyone, what would you say to someone who wants to make a difference but doesn't know where to start?
0: Ah, uh, they could start by signing up for something that may make them uncomfortable. Just just, just do one step towards it, you know? I mean, uh, if they want to make a difference in the world, I mean, like, if you want to just make a difference in the world, I'd say just go and give yourself a goal of saying hello to five strangers, like somebody that you would probably never say hello to, and just look at it that way first. Just begin in this small realm, um, and then, you know, like, especially... On the street, we look at people and just oh, I would never talk to this person. Or oh man, this person is experiencing homelessness. I, I should talk to them. Or this 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 guy is a bum. He's always asking for money. I mean, like there's. Um, I think that would start changing the the way a person may see the world, and then they're from there. You know, then maybe that's when the student may become ready, and then that's when the teachers will appear, and then that's when they can start to make a difference.
1: Absolutely. Well. Thank you so much for joining the Bold Moves Only podcast.
0: Thank you for having me, Jason. Okay, thank
1: you everyone for listening. Again, I highly recommend you go check out Kwan's book if you want to learn more about his story. Have a great day and let's be bold.